and we said it's not about what? It's not about the fish. Well, the fish comes into play here a little bit today. We're going to talk some more about the fish next week. But today we're going to talk a little bit about numbness or apathy. And it always presents in this way, and it happens to us in our lives all the time. Uh, How many of you have ever gotten to a location, driving, and maybe it's a ways, and then you get there and you're like, how did I get here? You don't know if you ran a red light. You don't know if you caused an accident. Everything behind you is a blur because you've been driving and you just kind of went brain check out. It happens to me all the time. Am I the only one? A little feedback. Yes, it's happened to other people. Okay, good. Ah, it is one of the scariest things when you get there, right? To look back and go, oh man, what? And then I always look in the mirror and sometimes I'll go on the traffic app to see if there's anything behind me that I caused. But because you seriously go, it seems brain dead the whole trip. And so, uh, it, and what it is, is it, it happens when you just stop thinking. It, it, sometimes it's, sometimes it happens on the way home from here. It's been a long day, a long week. I'll drive home. And so this is sort of what's happening in, uh, what happens in Jonah. Weird place. He starts with a call of God, and then all of a sudden, he's in Joppa. There's no details with how he got to Joppa. We don't know where Jonah was when God called him. All of a sudden, in verse 1, Jonah, the Lord came to Jonah, Samuel Amittai, go to the city of Nineveh. Jonah says no, and where does he go? Joppa. We don't know from where. So it's just this kind of mindless travel that Jonah finds himself on. Now he's in Joppa. He's on the run from God. This sort of apathy, this sort of numbness uh, in his travel, this sort of numbness that happens in our lives every once in a while, also happens in our spiritual life. And when it happens, sometimes it's a decision that's caused it. Sometimes it's a sin that's taken a a hold of our heart and our conscience. And and then it has the potential to go deep inside of our souls. This is the apathy that Jonah shows us. Remember, this is a story about a prophet, not necessarily Jonah telling this. We're examining Jonah and we're finding ourselves in pieces of Jonah's life. And the section that we're going to look at today, sometimes we find ourselves in these parts of spiritual apathy. And there's spiritual apathy, there's different kinds. Sometimes God takes you through a season of apathy or what feels like apathy. There's this disconnection in order for him to woo you into a relationship, to change the way he talks to you. I'm not talking about that kind of apathy. That's growth in a relationship. That's good, that's normal, that's healthy. That happens in all of our relationships. Sometimes that God will say, I want to draw you deeper into the relationship, so I'm going to change the way that you and I communicate so you pursue God even further. That's wonderful. The type, of, the type of loneliness and apathy that we're talking about here today, the type of dryness that we're talking about today in Jonah, is the type that comes from a decision or a pattern of decisions that Jonah has made. Jonah has a relationship with God, or he says he has a relationship with God, and then he rebels against God, and all of a sudden he's in the Joppa, and then all of a sudden he's on a boat, and then all of a sudden he's in the biggest storm of his life. And in Jonah, what we see being painted in front of us is a spiritual portrait of apathy. It shows us why and how and what happens when we tend to fall asleep at the wheel between us and our relationship with God. 
So the first thing we're going to look at today is the actual slumber. I didn't turn in my outline on time, so it didn't get in your bulletin. That is my fault. There's going to be three little stops. We're going to talk about slumber. We're going to talk about a wake-up call. And then we're going to talk about the constant that, that is in the story. There's one constant throughout this. So it's going to be on the screen. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to uh, go back for, through Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. But the first thing we need to remind ourselves of are who are the characters here? Jonah. Jonah means dove. He is the son of Amittai, which means faithful, the faithful dove. The Lord is also another character. The Lord here is not, uh, it, it actually means Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. And he, he says so later in the thing, uh, later in the passage. And so Jonah finds himself running from Yahweh, running from God himself. The faithful dove has gone, flew the coop. Can you say that? Okay, thank you, Bryn. You make me feel good for laughing. Okay, Uh, then the Lord sent, Jonah goes down to Joppa, hops on a boat, and then the Lord sent a great wind to the sea. The word sent also means hurl. So remember we're talking Jonah, it's it's kind of like a comic book. You see this word great a lot. It means this, uh, that there's uh, extremes, and, 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 and he says the Lord hurled. He threw this huge storm onto the sea, and such a violent storm arose that even the ship threatened to break up. In Hebrew, this reads as the ship had a mind of its own. And it's saying, hey, this storm's too big. I'm going to break up. And so if you're, if you're reading this, if you're being read this back when the first time, this is what you're hearing. And so God is pursuing Jonah is the picture that we get. Now notice this. God isn't pursuing Jonah because he's angry and wants to destroy Jonah. Remember, why, why is God pursuing Jonah in the first place? He has an idea for him. He wants him to do something for him. So it's not that he's going after Jonah in order to smite him and kill him. He's saying, Jonah, I have something planned for you. I want you to do this great thing. I want you to go to Nineveh and share with them these things that God has for them. I want you to be a part of my story. And Jonah goes, no, I'm good. And he takes off. This kind of pursuit of God isn't an anger. It's actually a loving pursuit of God. Uh, He's chasing after his kid who's running towards the street. I chased after Judah twice yesterday as he ran towards the street. Was I annoyed? Absolutely. Was I ever wanting him to get hurt? No, that's why I was running after him. So we see this with God. He is that parent running running towards his kid not to squish him. That's not the God we see in the Bible. It's out of love. It's a fierce pursuit of his rebellious prophet. And so Jonah is on this boat, and then he's on this boat with another set of characters. They're sailors. Sailors who weren't, uh, weren't Christians by any means. They weren't followers of the Lord. They were from Joppa. They were most likely uh, polytheists, meaning they had a whole bunch of different gods that they would have worshipped. There was a god for everything, for every town, for every superstition. There was a god for this. And all of a sudden, this storm awaits, and it's in verse 5. All the sailors were afraid, and they cried out to their own god, Help me, Tom Cruise. Help me, Oprah. Help me, uh, whoever is the main person that you, Dr. Phil or whatever. And so they're, they're praying to all of these gods, hopefully that they can shotgun approach this and the gods will respond. But notice this, where, where's Jonah? He's sleeping below deck. So the, the ones who weren't attuned to what God was doing are the ones who's awake. Yet the one who should know what God is doing 
the prophet is sleeping. He has made his decision to run from God, and now he is below deck. The man of God is sleeping. And there's a wordplay that happens here in the text. If you go back into the beginning of Jonah, Jonah begins his descent down, down, down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. And then when it says he went aboard the boat, it means he went down onto it. And then he descended into the bottom part of the boat, below deck. And what we see is Jonah's life going down, down, and he's descending into this spiritual apathy, and his descent is not complete yet. He is falling down and down. This is the word play that's happening in Jonah. So here's this image of this, of this prophet of God, this person who's been called, then there's the, and, and he's asleep, and then there's this pagan sailors, and they're doing all they can to save themselves. The prophet of God, the person of God, he represents the people of God, doesn't seem to care of what's happening upstairs at all. And this is the portrait that's being painted by the author. It's a state of numbness. He's dead and he's unaware because of his sin, because of his rebellion. He has shut that out in his life so that God can't, well, he won't listen to what God is trying to tell him. God said, I want you to participate in this. I have an idea for you. And he's saying, no. And Jonah runs from that. Why? Because he hates Nineveh. It's pride. Pride is one of the sins that Jonah has. Everything about Nineveh, he doesn't want anything. It'd be better if Nineveh wasn't even around, so to speak. And so he says, you know what, God? I want you to destroy them. You call me to go to them, I'm going to run away from you because this is a bad idea. I know better than you, God. How many of you have ever been tempted to say that? I know better than you, God. I don't want to go this way. In Jonah's mind, this is where he is. And when he says that and we say that is might as well, we take a big shot of NyQuil, double the dose to our spiritual life, and then we are going to be out cold. And God allows this to happen, right? He's, he's, not, he's not the kind of God that will come and make you do things. You have a free will. Does he want you to do this? Absolutely not. But do we? All the time. And where is God when we're doing this? Is he angry? No, he's pursuing us. In the middle of our rebellion, he's pursuing us. When we get to the bottom of the boat, when we descend into our own sin, he's still pursuing us, hoping that we'll come right back. This is the God we serve. He is after us in the middle of our apathy, in the middle of our wrong decisions. And then when we find our place in danger, we're completely unaware. This is where Jonah is. This is the image that's being portrayed. Who would fall asleep in this storm? Sometimes in the middle of our rebellion, we are asleep at the wheel. We have no idea what we're doing. We have no idea why we got there, but we're dead to the world. We have no idea our actions. We don't think they're affecting anybody else. And this is the state of many of our hearts at times. I'm a heavy sleeper, especially when I take NyQuil or melatonin or any kind of thing. Uh, was it uh, Unisom, uh, whatever it is, but I can sleep through anything and it annoys Carrie uh, because when the baby was first born, a baby slept through the night for all I was concerned. Uh, I, I went to sleep 
And I woke up in the morning. Uh, but I am dead to... Well, there was one time where Carrie was, she says, allegedly, she was shaking me to wake me up because some, maybe I was snoring or taking up all the blankets. I don't know, but I'm a heavy sleeper. And here's Jonah. He's asleep. They don't know why he's asleep. And the sailors ask him the same question. How can you be sleeping when you're like this? Get up. You're down in the bottom of the boat. You're, you're, you're hiding from everyone. You're in this apathy. Don't you even care about this? Can't you? Why don't you wake up from this? In Jonah's mind, he's like me in the middle of the night. Everything's fine. I didn't hear that bump. I didn't hear the door open. I didn't hear the baby crying. I didn't feel that one time I slept through a 6.5 earthquake. It was the best earthquake I've ever experienced. I thought I was being rocked to sleep again. It's just the way it happens. And so th- that's me. And this is what they're thinking Jonah is happening to Jonah. How can you be sleeping at a moment like this? And notice this. The captain. The captain who is not a follower of Yahweh. Doesn't know the Lord. The captain goes down. Wakes up Jonah. And then he reminds the man of God, Jonah, that he has to do something. Do you see that? Jonah. Jonah. Get up and call on your God. The man of God had to be reminded to talk to his God. Do you see how far Jonah has slipped away? In many ways, it's a picture of the sin in our lives. It's one of the, it's one of the many scriptures that we get that might strike us weird because we tend to live in a culture where we think our sin doesn't affect anybody else. We live in these cultures that siloed. Whatever I do in my house, whatever I do in my life, that's my thing. This is my space. It doesn't, remember my space? This is my place. This is what we do. This, this is my choices. It doesn't affect you. But the scripture tells us something completely different. That, that view of sin and that view of the way we live our lives is completely naive. It's uninformed, it's simplistic, and it's absolutely wrong. We say, just do you, live your truth, right? That's the way our culture is. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's your choice. Whatever you have to do, do it. No one else can say anything because it's what you want to do. It's right for you, then it's right for you, and and so you should do it, and that's what we come to. But the Bible exposes something about this. It says that our choices affect everybody else. We don't live in a disconnected way of life. We don't live in a silo where our sins don't touch other people. Do you remember the story of Achan in Joshua 7? I'll remind you. Uh, it's this, Achan was a man in Israel, and then uh, Joshua, where they were going to go fight this battle, and the Lord said, destroy everything. Don't keep anything for yourself. Well, here's Achan. He goes in and he's about to destroy things. This is the Brad Standard version. And he comes to this and he sees this pot of gold and goes, I want that. Wouldn't you want a pot of gold in your house? So he takes it and he hides it underneath his tent. And then what happens next? God says, hey, not everyone obeyed the rules here. And then they went to fight and then they lost the battle. And Joshua comes before the Lord and says, what happened? And God said, there's sin in your camp. And this person's sin affected everything. And so slowly but surely they go through all the tribes and they find Achan and then Achan fesses up to it after they find the gold. And not only Achan was punished, but his family and everyone attached to his home. Achan made a decision. 
oh, this is, this is just going to affect me. No, 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 this isn't going to hurt anyone else. I'm just going to be a millionaire. And then this takes out this whole camp. It's this butterfly effect for sin, right? The smallest thing, we think it's not going to affect anyone. It affects everyone. This is the picture of Jonah. Jonah sinned, rebelled against God, goes down to Joppa, hops on a boat, gets on the boat, and all of a sudden there's a storm. He's fine, but everybody else is suffering. Isn't that the truth with sin? You feel great, but everyone else is having a hard time. I learned this on construction. When I worked construction for my dad, I was terrible, so I learned this lesson a lot. Whenever I messed up or did a halfway job, it didn't just make me go back and do more work. For instance, when I was hanging drywall in a house and I did a terrible job at the drywall and I had more screws because I couldn't find the stud and so there's holes all over the drywall with me trying to search. And, uh, and so what happened was I thought it was just my, pro- my problem, we'll just leave it up there. No, that made more work for the tapers. It made more work for the painters because now they're late. And it made more work for, uh, for the, the whole job because of my absence of mind, my not caring about how I was doing, affected everybody. I was the butterfly in the butterfly effect. It's the same thing with our sin. He's what Jonah, what Jonah 1 shows us is that our decisions are not isolated choices that don't touch anyone else. Instead, our lives are interconnected more than we realize. And it's vital that we understand this. Jonah needed a wake-up call. And it came in the form of the captain saying, get up, go call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of you so you won't perish. Do you guys remember that this is supposed to be a a funny book? Well, there's, there's a sarcastic line in here, and I'm very fluent in sarcasm. Here it is. It says, maybe he will notice you. Who sent the storm? God. Does God already notice Absolutely. And so this is the, you guys are supposed to laugh at that. And so, thank you. And so now this is the, the, maybe he's going to notice you. This is the God who sent the wind. He notices what's going on here. But Jonah has to be reminded that he needs to pray. Then in verse seven, the sailor said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this uh, calamity. And then they cast lots, and it fell to Jonah. This is like the ancient dice rolling. Uh, they would roll the dice or draw straws. And are we surprised that it went to Jonah? This guy can't catch a break. Everything he's doing is just coming up dead end after dead end. And then what it is, it's a wake-up call after wake-up call after wake-up call, and he never responds to it. The lots say it goes to Jonah. The, the storm, Jonah knows it's about him. He's moving further and further away, and he never he just doesn't get it. And so now they ask him a bunch of questions in verse 8. Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And they are just grilling him. And notice Jonah doesn't answer all, but he only answers one of their questions. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. The word worship there can also be translated to fear, as in I respect, I honor I obey. You see the humor here. I, I worship the Lord. I fear the Lord. Really, Jonah? Do you? Are you sure? As if you, 
if you fear someone, if you respect someone, usually you do uh, what they ask you to do. But here's Jonah. I respect the Lord. I do what he tells me. I'm on a boat heading to Tarsus. I'm supposed to be in Nineveh. Uh, so, so this is the problem with Jonah's answer is that he fears the Lord. And then he says, who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah knows exactly who God is. He knows what he's doing. Do you see his hypocrisy? His words confesses in his faith are in deep conflict. He's a, his bad example is just hanging out there for us. There's no resolution to it. It's like the author wants us to look at that last phrase and go, oh, you moron. He wants us to think this about Jonah. But in this way of writing, this is the trap. Because we can look at Jonah and go, Jonah, you, you just don't get it. How are you doing this? And then we start blaming Jonah. And then the mirror turns and go, oh man, I do the same thing. I'm getting, I'm getting, uh, I'm hanging on Jonah a lot. I'm, I'm seeing his bad things and I'm picking on him saying, you do this, you do this, you do this, Jonah. But really, the author wants you to turn around and go, hey, so do you. Remember, it's a way of writing back then. For, for this genre, it's, it's, it's satire that shows and exposes the reader more than it does the person that we're reading about. It's a story about a prophet, but it's a story about you and I. Because we can say to Jonah, you are a biggest hypocrite, like we've never had a contradiction in our lives. Like all the time we believe exactly the way we act. We've never ran from God's call because we are uncomfortable with it. We, oh, and we're superior to Jonah. We think we're better than Jonah. And when we do, we're only kidding ourselves, because look what happens in verse 10. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? And then there's this little parenthetical statement that it's, they knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. How, there's another thing that we don't, how did where was this conversation in the text? Was it when he was paying them? So why do you want to go to Tarshish? Oh, I'm running from God. This is why. Uh, oh, I want to do this. And uh, that's fine. Come on, come on. They, who, is, who is Yahweh? They don't, they don't know. And so they, they already knew had, what he was up to. And then, then, then it started to connect the dots. Oh, two plus two equals the lots. And this is Jonah's fault. Jonah, what are you doing how have you gotten this far? Don't you see how your sin has gotten you to this place and you've affected all of us? I think this is probably next to the lowest section in Jonah's life. This line happens, one author points out that this what are you thinking or what are you doing happens a couple times in scriptures. And it's always from people outside of the family of God. It's always from, this author says, that it's always people who don't know God who are looking at people of God acting like they don't know God. And they're saying, what are you thinking? The most prominent one I could think of is when Abraham lies to Abimelech twice and says, I'm, she's not my wife in order to cover his tracks. And then Abimelech finds out, it's your wife. What are you thinking, Abraham? Abraham, lying. Jonah, running. It shows the deep contradiction. 
But look what happens in verse 11. And the sea was getting rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me in the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault, and this great storm has come upon you. And when you're reading this, you're like, oh, finally, Jonah, you get it. You see that's your fault, right? This is, what, this is Jonah's redemption. Maybe his heart's changed. Maybe his actions are coming around. Maybe he's realizing that, that he needs to pay his dues here. He needs to say, yep, this is my fault. Throw me into the sea. Or this is a, another sinking feeling of Jonah's apathy. He's running further from God, and he says, I would rather die than do what God has asked me to do. I think it's that one. I would rather die. Because what happens is the people of the, on the boat, the sailors, try and start rowing back to shore to save Jonah's life. And if Jonah would have had a perfect change of heart, I think they would have made it back to shore. But the word used for row here when they rowed back to shore is actually this word dig. And so they were digging themselves deeper and deeper and deeper and not going anywhere. Jonah didn't have a change of heart. Jonah was trying to run even further if Jonah had a change of heart, they would have made it. And then, then they cried out in verse 14, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing this innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you've pleased. Remember in verse 5, they're crying out to all of their gods. Now in verse 14, they're crying out to Yahweh. Notice this. In all of the prayers that have happened in Jonah's chapter 1, who's the ones who are praying, not Jonah. Everybody else in the text is praying to their own gods. Finally, they start praying to Yahweh because they see Yahweh's power. And then they say, Yahweh, don't hold us accountable. We're going to kill this guy. We're going to throw him overboard. It's not our fault. This is what you wanted. They're the ones that are praying. They, have, you can say, has ha- they've had a, con- a conversion and then they took the, to the over, they threw him overboard in verse 15, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. This is the same word used for worship. This was a respect and honor. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to them. Now, I don't think this is something they can do on a wooden boat. I think this is something that happened back at shore. They went and found a temple, offered a sacrifice, prayed, made vows. Their lives were changed. By Jonah. Now, Jonah said he feared the Lord, but did he really? No. These men feared the Lord and they met and made a sacrifice. This is the wake up call that Jonah should have paid attention to, but he didn't even see it. Jonah's wake up call comes next week. These men were shown the, the, the mighty power of Yahweh, but it wasn't because Jonah wanted it to happen. And in this, we see the constant. God is the constant throughout all of the story. It's the easy answer, right? Whenever there's an answer, a question in the Bible, Jesus or God, but here it actually fits. God is the constant. And he's always bringing people to himself using the most imperfect representative that he could find. What this story tells us, and it's pretty obvious, that Jonah is very imperfect but God is not tied to Jonah for his success. His success. Jonah, just Jonah can't outmaneuver God. Jonah, I don't, Jonah says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to tell them about you. That's fine, Jonah. 
you go do your thing. This is God saying this. Go do your thing. I'm still going to use you. You don't want to tell Nineveh, but you'll tell these sailors. And these sailors will come to know, you, to know me through you. Jonah, do you think that you're going to surprise me by what you're going to do? I know you're going to go on a boat. I'm God, remember? I made the sea, and you're going to run on the sea. And then you're going to run to the land. God is not surprised through this. And what we notice here is that God will use anybody to make his message known. Even the most imperfect polytheistic sailors that you can find, God still uses him. This is a pattern that we see that God uses. And it's a lie that you and I trap ourselves in. We think we have to be perfect in order to be used by God. Was Jonah perfect? Far, far from it. Yet all the sailors came back, prayed, made vows, and were genuinely converted to Yahweh. Gentiles, men of Joppa, they weren't Jewish, but now they're worshiping God, the Jewish God, the only God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who controls the sea. And why? Because Nimrod Jonah showed them the right way, even though Jonah wasn't expecting to. God uses imperfect people, and it's a pattern through Scripture. Abraham lied. Jacob was a con man. Uh, Let's see, David was an adulterer. Peter had an anger issue. Paul murdered Christians. All through the Scripture, we see God using imperfect people to accomplish what he's trying to do. And it's almost as if this is what he dwells upon. All of these imperfect people point to the perfect person of Christ, and it makes Christ stand out even more because there's no reason why these imperfect people should have the power and, and should do what they're doing if it wasn't for Christ in their lives. Jonah, in all of his sin and rebelliousness and all of his apathy, shouldn't have had this much success in converting the sailors. In our minds, we think Jonah's a sinner. He's gone. He said that one thing. He tweeted that one thing. He had that attitude. He agrees with this person. He's done. There's no way God can use him. It's not how God thinks. But it's how we think. We think because we messed up that one time years ago, there's no way. God can't use me. I have this attitude and God, God, God can't use it so I'm just going to sit over here and sulk. And then we begin our slow descent down to apathy. And here's the key. God is still pursuing you because he wants to use you to bring his joy and peace and message. And he wants to use a broken person like me and wants to use a broken person like you to do it. Because broken people make the best mosaics. The broken pieces come together and God likes to bring beauty from those pieces. He likes to bring beauty from ashes. It's the story of God throughout this and this is why it's constant in Jonah's life and in our life. It doesn't matter how broken you are, God can still use you. Jonah, completely shattered, God still uses him. He's thrown over the side of the boat and all the people on the boat go, whoa, whoa. This guy was onto something. This guy's God is actually the powerful God that we want to worship. Nothing he could have done could thwart the work that God was doing. Our rebellion, God can use that. You want to go over here instead of go over there. Fine, I can use that. You want to bury your head in the sand. I'll use that. You want to harden your heart and keep making your heart harder and harder. Fine, I'll use that too. Do you think that you're going to catch God off guard? I made the sea, God says. I can use 
even you. God is going to do what God is going to do, and that's not going to change. The only thing that we can do is change. Either we can engage and be a part of what God is doing, or we can stay asleep and miss the entire thing. These sailors had an amazing change of heart. Did Jonah see it? No. We'll see later in the text. The whole city came, the whole city of Nineveh, spoiler alert if you don't know the story, the whole city of Nineveh came and repented. Did Jonah see it? Yeah, but he was ticked at it. He didn't really see it. We have a choice in our brokenness to either wake up and see what God is doing around us and step into it, or we can stay asleep. And the choice is all yours. Jonah gets thrown over a boat, the side of the boat. And in verse 17, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. But the story doesn't end there. But for most of us, this is where our story ends. There's no way God can use us now. There's something that Jonah learns, and we'll learn about it next week, in the belly of the fish that each one of us need to learn about our God. It doesn't matter how deep you've gone. It doesn't matter how asleep you are. It doesn't matter how many times you've screwed up. It doesn't matter how, many, how far you've rebelled. It doesn't matter if you've ran away. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God still pursues you with mercy and grace. And here's how to get it. Here's what you do. Nothing. You did nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to receive it but sit there with your hands open and say, I want it. Do you want in? That's all you have to do. God says, or Paul says in Romans, that while we were yet sinners, while we were dead in our transgressions, dead, no pulse, done, God pursued us and died for us. All we have to do is say, I want it. That's it. Uh, most sermons end with three steps and an application point, but this is the first one, or maybe the only one, or something that we just say, do you want it? Yeah. Great. Let it start there. That's the beginning point to all of this. Do you want it? Absolutely. Do you want to be woken up? Do you want to come back to life? Do you want to be redeemed? Do you want to be used? Do you want to see those mistakes used and have God redeem those mistakes that you've ran from him? All of those things that you're embarrassed about, do you want to see God use them? Yep. Okay, allow him to. That's all you have to do. He does all the work on this. While you were dead, he pursued you. Jonah has this turn of heart in Jonah chapter 2 where you'll see he goes even further and deep, deep, deep into the deep and he says he goes to the roots of the mountains. That's how deep he had to go. And then he gets it for a second, for a minute. Today we celebrate communion. We say we celebrate it. We come to this thing excited because what God has done to pursue us so that we can wake up so that we can have a wake-up call, so we don't keep descending into our apathy, so we don't keep descending into our rebellion. This is the sign when you get to your car and you park and you go, what just happened? This is that moment where God says, I want you to see this and see the grace that I have, the grace that you just need to take to stop this downward spiral that you're on.
And all you have to do is take it. This is what the beauty thing, the beautiful thing about Christ in our lives. He's just sitting there saying, do you want a part of this? Do you want to be redeemed? And the wonderful thing about communion is what it represents. A meal in those days is when you came to the meal, you said, I want in. I'm joining with you. I want to be a part of the story you're writing. It wasn't just a meal. It's not just a snack. It's a, it's a step of allegiance. You're saying, I'm no longer aligned here. I'm aligning with you. I'm eating with you. I'm fellowshipping with you. I'm taking a part of your body and putting it into my body so I can become like you. It's stepping into God's story. And this is the invitation that Christ gives us through communion. It's the invitation he gives us through the cross so that we can find new life. And so today, as we close and we celebrate communion, I'd like us to take a moment and thank God for that grace that we have. But also identify that place in your life where you are spinning into apathy, where you just need to wake up. Wake up. God is doing an amazing work around you, and he wants to use you. And is it pride? Is it selfishness? Is it bitterness? Is it whatever is standing in the way of you joining in God's story? Stop it and get in God's story. Would you pray with me and would the communion ushers come forward? Father, we thank you that you don't give up on us. That you pursue us out of love and grace and mercy and truth you follow us to the depths of the sea in the midst of our rebellion. God, may we meet you there because you meet us there. So God, as we pause and remember your sacrifice, as we remember the cross, may we be drawn back to you as you draw near to us. It's in your name we pray.